0: And for our second hour roundtable on america can we talk with debbie Addis? more talking truth about america
1: and welcome back to america can we talk okay so um, this show is racing by and uh, you know i do this show completely and solely i don't have Maybe obvious. I don't have radio training. I'm not a radio, um, you know, didn't major in communications in college. I'm not a radio person. I do this show entirely, 100% out of passion and love for America and wanting to preserve the unique greatness of America. And many stories I tell, many guests I get on, they're all trying to help develop the idea I have in my head and my heart about America. But this idea that you have to stand up to protect and preserve this country because there will always be people who will be happy to take your liberty away in one way or another. And I want to hit on one point tonight, and I don't know if um, that relates to that, which is this. Some of you may have watched this past week there I think CNN sponsored was a town hall that CNN sponsored and it was about it was a debate between uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Ted Cruz both presidential candidates and it was about the budget and you know kind of what um, you know what uh, priorities there should be in spending and blah 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 anyway Bernie Sanders floats this statement and he's not the only one this is the kind of thing you'll hear liberals say people on the and when i say liberals uh not in the classic you know wonderful term of open-mindedness but liberals in in the political jargon of today are people who simply want big government control over every single aspect of your life if you're willing to surrender your liberty and give it to them but i want to the specific thing that bernie sanders said he said he was decrying the uh, America and what a horrible, rotten country it is. And he was saying that America, United States of America, has the second highest rate of childhood poverty in the developed world. And so, you know, first of all, I want to just say, tell you why he says that is because he knows he's speaking to a nation of good, moral, Caring, loving people. And if you actually think that's true, if you think America really has the second highest childhood poverty rate in the developed world, you would say, oh my gosh, well, we better give in and pay more taxes. We better give in and expand the welfare state. We better give in and have more and more people provided their food and housing and everything by the government because we have a horrific poverty rate. Who knew? I didn't know that. I mean, Americans are good people. They're going to respond that way. If if to something like that, if it were true and Bernie Sanders knows this, this is an intentionally manipulative and completely dishonest argument designed to inspire people to concede to big government, to concede that we better pay more taxes and give up more of our hard earned money so that government can take care of people because we, okay, here's the truth. And here's how he gets away with saying that it's really vital to understand the game he plays. And many, many liberals play. So this this uh, statistic that America has a second highest rate of childhood poverty in America comes from an actual uh, an organization within the United Nations. Um, it is the uh, United Nations Children's Fund. Then beneath that, there is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Again, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. So if someone pins... Mr. Senator Sanders and says, you know, where'd you get that number? Oh my gosh, everyone knows it's UN, OECD, you know, well-known. Here's the dirty little secret. And you must understand this and tell everyone, whoever recites that insane statement to you, tell them the truth. So what OEC does, it takes the median income of every nation and median just means half the people in the country make more than that amount and half the people in the country make less so the median amount and then they calculate how many children live in households where the median income is 25% is you know 25% or lower um, I'm sorry. The median in where live in a household where the the income is 25 percent or less of the median income. The household income. I'm sorry, I get this right. The household income is 25 percent or less of the median income. So they're basically saying the bottom quarter of the uh, income earners. Compare with the median and how many children live in that that you know that that number. So let's just give simple numbers. Say that for easy numbers, you know everyone earns a hundred thousand dollars. That the hundred thousand dollars a year is the median income in America. Let's just say that. So half of that would be fifty. So any any household where children live and and in a household that has fifty thousand or less in you know in income, they're considered to be in poverty. The dirty little secret is this: if you compare America. To every other country in the world, including the developed countries, we are among the most prosperous, abundant country in the world. It's a completely false, fallacious, hoax argument because because America is so well off. And Americans are so well off. The the bottom 25 percent, our median, our median is so much higher than the developed countries of the world, so much higher than almost every country in the world, that just because your family, children, lives lives in a house, a child is in a household that happens to be 20, you know, um, less than half of the median doesn't mean you're in poverty. In America, it means you probably have three televisions, two cars, seven cell phones, and everything you possibly need. But they do this statistic. I'm going to elaborate on more um, when we come back. We, We have a guest coming up, and I'm going to tell you more about this. But understand, it's a lie. Don't buy into it. And come right back. We're speaking to another person about the whole issue of labor unions. Robert Alt from Buckeye. Don't go away.
2: Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers, and if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America, in fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit firstliberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's firstliberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to firstliberty.org now.
1: You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org.
2: America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. Organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out CenterForSecurityPolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's CenterForSecurityPolicy.org.
1: And welcome back to America Can We Talk. And again, thank you so much for tuning in to the fastest two hours of my week. Just love talking with you every week. And we have on the line tonight Robert. Alt. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Buckeye Institute, uh, and he also serves in the Board of Trustees there. But the Buckeye Institute, we were talking earlier tonight uh, about labor unions and their impact on America's freedom. And the Buckeye Institute is involved in trying to uh, talk about and push up the idea of worker voting rights. So first, good evening. Welcome, Robert.
4: Good evening. Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, happy to have you, and I would just love to have you tell our listeners when Buckeye is focusing on, the Buckeye Institute's focusing on worker voting rights, what does that mean? What are you talking about?
4: Well, uh, we we were taking a look at issues a while back, and we, we found something fairly startling, and that is that 94% of union members across the country have never had the opportunity to vote for the union that's representing them. The union was handed down to them. We, we refer to them as heirloom unions, handed down from oftentimes uh, perhaps even your grandfather's generation from decades ago. Uh, to give but one example, here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, the Columbus Teachers Association, the local teachers union, was voted in as the bargaining unit uh, uh, for Columbus schools back in the late 60s during the Nixon administration. However, if you were to walk into an average elementary school classroom in my neighborhood, the teachers probably weren't even born. Then. They've, <laughs> yep. they've never had they've never had the opportunity to vote. In fact, you know this is some a vote that happened before they were uh, they were even a gleam in their parents' eyes.
1: Okay, that is actually amazing. and I want you to say that statistic again. Uh, if you could the 90- ninety
4: ninety four percent of union workers across the country, the unions that are in place they've never had the opportunity to vote for them they've never had a voice with regard to uh to their union they've never had a choice with regard to their unions and fundamentally we think that that's just not fair you know particularly in states that aren't right to work ohio is not a right to work state which is i mean what that means once again is Uh, If if you're a worker and and you work in a unionized workplace and you fail to pay your union dues or your agency fees, that employer is required to fire you. Um, So once again, if, in fact, you can be fired for not giving your dues to the union and you've never even had the opportunity to vote for that union, I think that's doubly unfair.
1: Oh, it's ridiculous. This is so interesting because I think people assume that pretty much, and they just assume it must be on some regular basis, kind of like how you elect your state reps or your congressmen, whatever. That you have a periodic revoting, but so you're just this is a product of just state law, right? That that once a union has been certified, there's no automatically required uh, over over some regular period vote again. Is that right?
4: With regard to public sector unions, and again the, the public sector unions, these are the unions that represent public employees. those could be your teach you know your public school teachers, those could be the folks who are working for state or local governmental agencies. In each of these cases, um, the the law governing whether or not you're going to have these regular periodic elections, that's a state law question. And so the states can, states can and in some cases they have chosen to require the unions to sit for regular elections, um, but far too few have done that. And so leading once again to that, I think, really terrible statistic about the number of, uh, of union workers who have never had a vote. The other interesting thing to, to look at is um, I think among among the bigger issues with regard to union satisfaction, uh, union worker satisfaction, I should say, is the feeling as to whether or not their unions are truly accountable um to the employees and we hear these complaints all the time with you know once again the unions are spending a a, you know a great deal of money on political purposes or how much the union executives are being paid or you know any number what you know the the stance that they're taking on particular issues are those the views that really represent the rank and file membership um the interesting thing is again we've done a quite a bit of polling and union workers are are pretty emphatic on this. 85% of union employees here in Ohio think that holding regular periodic elections would make the unions more accountable. And of course, I mean that makes perfect sense. We, if you go to our website, workervotingrights.org, we've got quotes from some of the leading heads of of uh, public sector employee, employee unions. <clears throat> in which they talk about the fact that prior to uh, one of these reforms being passed in Wisconsin, uh, they, they conceded, look, we were taking our membership for granted. We weren't even communicating with them well, which I suppose at a certain point makes sense. If you have a once one-and-done election in which you never have to, as a union, stand for reelection again, whether you provide good service, bad service, or no service at all – at a certain point doesn't matter you're going to get the dues anyway uh, there's no real competition uh, there's no real opportunity for the workers to vote you out and so there's no incentive to provide that better quality service for the workers so this re- this kind of reform it provides the accountability uh, that the workers desire and it really should pr- provide for better services for the workers from their unions
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. I can imagine, though, the unions are not behind this idea because they've really kind of got a monopoly. I mean, that maybe isn't the exact analogy, but they have control over a group of employees. They're collecting dues. They're directing their donations to wherever they want. And the notion of having to be accountable, uh, they're going to be fighting. I mean, this is it. You're trying to do this in state legislatures to get these uh, voter uh, working—I'm saying it in the wrong sequence—voter worker voting rights bills passed. But you must get union opposition to this, right?
4: Well, but you know they're they're up against their own members on this. If you take a look across the country, uh, polling it's it's generally well into the eighty eighty percent plus, about eighty five percent of uh, uh, union workers want worker voting rights. They want periodic elections. Here in Ohio, the numbers are phenomenal. The polling we've done. Over 90 percent of union workers want to have worker voting rights. They want periodic elections. They want to have that voice and choice. So at this point, they're up against their own membership on this particular question. The workers want to actually have that vote. They want the accountability, but they also want the choice. I mean, the interesting thing on this is this really empowers the worker. Uh, there, you know, in these elections, they have the opportunity to choose whether or not to keep the union. But that also gives them another opportunity, which is to consider whether they'd like a different union to represent them. Uh, you know, and there are, oftentimes are more than one union w- who would be able to provide services for a particular workplace. Um, and competition is good; it brings out the best. It tends to lower prices. It tends to increase the quality of service. I always. Say, you know, for those, those listeners out there, think back to the bad old days when there was one cable company in your neighborhood and they'd give you a, a time frame for, uh, for an installation sometime between 8 a.m. today and 12 noon next <laughs> Thursday. Yep. They, you know, it, it was terrible. Now, you know, they advertise it. They'll give you a two hour time window and text you when they're on the way and they're constantly lowering their prices and increasing their service because there's competition. Uh, competition makes us all better uh and i think that will have the same effect with regard to the
1: unions absolutely very quickly do you know whether how many states have already have in place something that is similar to the worker voting rights uh, bill
4: to, to date, there are two that have passed it in some form or another. Tennessee has done it with regard to teachers' unions. They have to stand for a reelection every three years. Wisconsin has done it for public sector uh, unions. There are some other states that have introduced something similar uh, but have not yet passed it. Uh, it is possible, by the way, for this to be passed as a piece of national legislation as well, and I do know oh. that. There's a congressman who has introduced a piece of legislation on this, but I don't know about you. I worked in D.C. for years, and I moved to the states for a very particular reason, which is I wanted to get something done. Yeah. Uh, and, and in my experience, you know, st- the mm-hmm. states really are much more effective in getting things done. The laboratories of democracy, that's a real thing. And yep. so I tend to think that, that uh, the state legislatures, particularly on an issue like this, I've been in the public policy game now for many, many years, seen a lot of polls. It is rare that you see a poll that is 90 percent on anything. And in this, this case, we oversampled union households because we wanted to know what the union workers thought. And the union workers were the ones who were the most emphatic about demanding having these worker voting rights.
1: I love it. We're almost out of time here. I do want to ask if you can tell our listeners how to learn more about this you mentioned. One website workervotingrights.org, but then your your larger group, the Buckeye Institute has a website too, right?
4: We do. Uh uh buckeyeinstitute.org. You can visit you can visit buckeyeinstitute.org as well, but uh, we, uh, the workervotingrights uh .org website that's that is a project of the buckeye institute so please feel free to visit both of those we've got plenty of information about worker voting rights as well as our other projects on those websites
1: love that robert alt thank you so very much for talking with us tonight
4: my pleasure thanks for having me on
1: okay folks we're going to come back and i'm going to say that oecd statistic correctly because it's so important to get plus we have a big thing coming up i want to talk with you about general john kelly and what he said to america don't go away
0: THE ONLY THING STANDING BETWEEN THEM AND OPEN BORDERS IS AN INFORMED PUBLIC. GET INFORMED AND STAY INFORMED BY VISITING CIS.ORG.
1: THAT'S CIS.ORG. IF THERE'S ONE THING THE CONSERVATIVE MOVEMENT NEEDS, IT'S A LEADER. AND WE HAVE ONE, THE HERITAGE FOUNDATION. HI, I'M DEBBIE GEORGIADIS. HERITAGE GETS IN THE TRENCHES ON CAPITOL HILL. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million Heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. And welcome back. Love, love talking to you every Sunday night. And, you know, it's funny. We I, First of all, appreciate the last segment we had an interview with Robert Ault of the Buckeye Institute. And, you know, again, these, these ideas of if you, the way the laws are set in most states, only two are not this way. The way, if you especially are not in a uh, right to work state, the way the laws are set for public unions is basically you Get a job in the public sector, and that is not just school teachers. Many, many jobs in the public sector. You must be in a union in order to be permitted to work or else you lose your job. You must pay dues. And what he's are pointing out is most people join unions, they never – got to vote for the union, they have no obligation under state law, For the, the union has no obligation or to and the employees have no right to say, hey, why don't we vote every two years if we still like our union, or every four years, whatever it would be. The unions have a death grip hold on those jobs and, and the people in those jobs, and there's no way out. And This is just contrary to the idea of America, the idea of liberty. And if your union is not inspired to do the things that keep their work Workers happy. I mean, if the unions are doing a good job, then the union members are going to vote for them again and come back and say yes. But if you if the union is not listening, if the union is not responding to the claims, not not going after the issues that the workers want them to go after, then why should the workers be stuck with them? But it takes people. It, I tell you, the fight for liberty is on many, many levels all the time. And it comes back to that notion of the right of the individual. And, you know, unions, I wrote about this in my book, my book, which is now five years old, Ladies, Can We I talked about the history of unions and in particular in communist countries, especially like in Russia and their communist um, you know, constitution, they wrote about unions as this really important, wonderful thing and, and unions because it's a concept of collectivism. It's a concept of crushing the individual's freedom. It's a concept of controlling the individual. And so unions are integral in communist countries. In America, they have had a role historically. Maybe they still do today in certain industries, public or private. I'm actually not really sure. I think there should be any public unions. Story for another day, whether public, because taxpayers pay those people and and, and not sure whether public unions are really fair to the taxpayers, but... The whole concept in America of an individual working at his job and being controlled by a union over which he has no control and can't get rid of them, this is not American. This is, forget left, right, Democrat, Republican, it's just un-American. The idea of individual liberty has to include something about at least having some way to participate in selecting your union or deselecting them. Okay, I'm going to go back and try to say this thing about the OECD, because my real point in all this was when Bernie Sanders, in the debate this past week— he was in a debate with Ted Cruz on CNN, a town hall, whatever they called it. And it was about the upcoming tax and, and budget bill and all that. And Bernie Sanders made the statement that to many liberals claim that America, our precious country, the United States has a second highest rate of childhood poverty in the developed world. Only Romania is worse. And they say that, because of the way the OECD calculates poverty. They basically calculate poverty by saying, deciding that people living in poverty consist of the number as a percentage of people who earn less than half of the country's median wage. But in a wealthy country like America, people living in households earning less than half of the country's medium median wage Make more money than most countries on earth. It's a completely false and manipulative statement and number to use because America is a wealthy country even the and I we talked about this before in this show the statistic uh, is something to the effect of the bottom 10% of Americans the lowest income 10% live better than something like 73% of the rest of the world i mean the notion that childhood poverty in America is astronomical is a f- is just a flat out lie and bernie sanders knows it but the reason he says that in debates the reason he will say that in speeches is because he is manipulating the hearts of loving, good Americans who, hearing that, if they don't know any better, they think it's true, that gives them the incentive to just give in and surrender, give more of your tax dollars to Washington, let government grow, let government be the ones that feeds and clothes and houses and educates everyone. You surrender your liberty, and this is what Bernie Sanders wants, surrender your liberty based on a lie. And you have to be smarter than that, and you have to be able, able to recount. Even though I didn't do such a great job earlier saying the statistic right, but I hope you got. And if you didn't, it's up on. Our, I think it's up on our Facebook page too. But if it's not, it will be. And also, our website, AmericaChemieTalk has all the links to Schneid's articles, and the Facebook page has it. Go and read this, and make sure you understand it yourself, so you can tell your friends. Okay, I want to switch um, topics entirely. So, thankfully for America. General John Kelly, President Trump's chief of staff, made a speech this week. And this was about, if you didn't see this in the news, President Trump contacted the widows of the four Americans killed in an ISIS um, ambush in Niger. And so, four precious young Americans lost their lives, military men lost their lives. President Trump called all of the, the wives of all of them. One woman was in a car with a uh, Democrat congresswoman named Frederica Wilson, and they tried to make a media firestorm out of the way President Trump expressed his condolences. It was an outrage. I'm going to talk you more about the, how outrageous it was what she did. But first, but John Kelly fortunately made a speech in front of the press corps in Washington. I have a, a segment to play, and then we'll talk about it more. So, Greg, if you're ready, let's roll.
6: I said to him, sir, there's nothing you can do to lighten the burden on these families. But let me tell you what I tell him. Let me tell you what my best friend, Joe Dunford, told me, because he was my casualty officer. He said, Kel, um, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do when he was killed. He knew what he was getting into by joining that 1 percent. He knew what the possibilities were, because we're at war. And when he died, in the four cases we're talking about, in Niger, my son's case in Afghanistan, when he died, he was surrounded by the best men on this Earth, his friends. That's what the President tried to say to to four families the other day. I was stunned when I came to work yesterday morning, and brokenhearted at what I saw a member of Congress doing. A member of Congress who listened in on a phone call from the President of the United States to a young wife, and in his way tried to express that opinion. He's a brave man, a fallen hero. He knew what he was getting himself into because he enlisted. There's no reason to enlist. He enlisted. And he was where he wanted to be, exactly where he wanted to be with exactly the people he wanted to be with when his life was taken. That was the message. That was the message that was transmitted. It stuns me that a member of Congress would have listened in on that conversation. Absolutely stuns me. And I thought, at least that was sacred. You know, When I was a kid growing up, a lot of things were sacred in our country. Women were sacred and looked upon with great honor. That's obviously not the case anymore, as we see from recent cases. Life, the dignity of life, was sacred. That's gone. Religion, that seems to be gone as well. Gold Star families, I think that left in the convention over the summer. But I just thought the selfless devotion that brings a man or a woman to die on the battlefield, I just thought that that might be sacred when I listened to this woman and what she was saying and what she was doing on TV, the only thing I could do to collect my thoughts was to go and walk among the finest men and women on this earth. And you can always find them because they're in Arlington National Cemetery.
1: Okay, if you if you didn't recognize that voice, that is General John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff. I should have mentioned before I started that his own son, General Kelly's son, was lost in his service of this country. I think he was in Afghanistan, and you know this uh, extremely moving speech that General Kelly made was in the White House or in the press area, and he had the whole press there, and it wasn't a normal press conference with them yelling and. You know, mocking. It just was a statement. And he did take a few questions, which I'll get to in a moment about how he handled the questions. But really, it was the most profound um, statement trying to lay out for America, really. You know, what's involved in the president's decision to call someone, to call the uh, widow um, or the surviving spouse of someone who uh, dies in the service of our country? He talked about how, you know, um, sometimes presidents don't call, sometimes they do. He, when his son was lost, General Kelly lost his son in Afghanistan. President Obama did not call him. And in fact, General Kelly was, was kind of not sure he should advise President Trump he should make the call. But the idea that an elected member of Congress would go out of her way to taunt and malign the president in claiming that, as she described, she overheard him speak in an insensitive way and say that this young man who was lost, uh, Sergeant Johnson, knew what he signed up for, trying to characterize that as though the president or anyone would call a grieving widow and taunt. This just shows you how low the Democrat Party has gotten. More on this after the break.
2: On August 2, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son, Mark Allen Lee, had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes' hope home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit America's Mighty Warriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. There's a lot of
5: talk today among media and academia in our culture about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers, it's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield.
2: Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans, in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to firstliberty.org now.
0: Can you hear us
3: now?
1: And welcome back to the final segment tonight of America Can We Talk. These two hours race by every week. I do want to say a little bit more about John Kelly's uh, speech in the White House, or his remarks to the press and to the country, really um, about this enormous—you um, know—I I, don't even know what to call it. Kerfuffle is too mild a word. Just mild contra- This enormous controversy created uh, by Florida Congresswoman Frederica William. Uh, what's her last name? Sorry, Frederica uh, Wilson. Um, and to be really clear about what is so egregious about her conduct first of all, the president doesn't have to call people who've lost their loved ones. I think, and you know, uh, General Kelly went through that, explained different presidents do or don 't and and depends on circumstances and in this particular one, it was four individuals lost in a apparently some kind of ambush by ISIS and in the country of niger and and so you know he elected to call he talked about the the tender way they go about it that actually someone is designated to call the family to say the president would like to call you would you, would you receive his call? would you accept his call? And I guess most people probably say yes. I guess you could say no. But they'd followed that. President Trump had asked General Kelly, What do you think I should do? And Kelly's trying to say, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, it's a nice gesture. But uh, honestly, since, you know, I'm not sure how comforting it is because, you know, they don't really know you. But, um, you know, so I don't. So he was he ended up I think General Kelly ended up saying to President Trump, maybe you you don't have to call, but he really wanted to. So the idea that whether you love Trump, hate Trump, whatever you think about him, make it a call to a grieving widow. I mean, every human knows how hard that would be certainly to lose your spouse, to lose your loved one. And, and it's hard to be the one placing the call. I mean, I know I have, you know, in, in your life, you think about you when you hear people pass on and you're debating, you know, do, would, would my call be intrusive or they appreciate it? Should I stay out of it and just send a note? Should I call? I mean, you, you're always, and so the, the, I mean, Frederica Wilson has gotten so far down the path of, she's either gotten so far down the path of dehumanizing President Trump that she can't even fathom that he, like anyone else struggles in this kind of situation Struggles about whether to call, what to say, Um, or she's just, which is actually equally likely in her case, she is part of the rabid Democrat media mob so determined to destroy this president that she seized on the opportunity. She happened to be with the, the widow when President Trump called her and heard the call seized on it thinking she'd somehow make political points off of it. She'd somehow hurt President Trump in this. I mean, she's looking for the political angle, the political gain to her in the most horrific of circumstances in people's lives. It's just simply despicable. And actually, she did tweet out finally yesterday after, let me make clear, after going on many talk shows trying to, you know, Alluding to claiming that President Trump was racist, that uh, General Kelly was racist, that these people were so they were racist and insensitive, blah blah, and she just got truly humiliated by General Kelly's grace and class and what he had to say. So she did tweet out yesterday. Freda Wiku Wilson t- tweeted out, "I'm done talking about this. This is good. She needs to be quiet now." And I, but the reason I want to dwell on just a little bit is this: there is so much animosity. Just waiting to flee, fling out of the mouths of the Democrat media mob in this country to look for every opportunity that anything that president trump does says doesn 't do doesn 't say that somehow they can make hay out of it, they can make him look bad, they think they can. this is their mission. It is not to solve problems it is not to discuss issues it is it is not it is just entire destruction mode that the left is in. And so we on the conservative side, whether you love Trump, don't like Trump, voted for him, whatever you thought, you have to recognize this is very detrimental to the president and his ability to carry out the agenda that the American people elected him to do. I don't have time tonight to go into, but sometime in some show soon, I'm going to go through all that President Trump has accomplished without the help of the GOP in Washington and in the many ways in which elected officials On the GOP side and the House and Senate are working very hard to undermine or in some other way continue to delegitimize President Trump. It is egregious. And so, as I say, he wasn't my choice in the primaries. I've said a million times in the show, but he is the president and he's doing many good things for this country. And we need to be more on alert, on our toes, recognize when these kind of stunts happen with Frederica Wilson, We need to be pointing out how absurd it is. What she tried to say, by the way, is that he used the expression, um, she heard him insensitively say that Johnson knew what he signed up for. And as you heard in the recording we had of General John Kelly, he's saying... Of course, that's what you say. You're, you're, you're praising the person. You're, you're honoring the person who lost their lives. You're saying, you know, he knew that it was dangerous. He knew that he was taking his life. You know, he was putting his life at risk. He knew what he was doing to serve this country. It's a compliment. She tried to take, and, and i tell you, folks, the moment I read that headline, I knew exactly what he meant. And I knew that she would find that what if you're determined to see it in the worst light, that you could say what well, she tried to say about. it. But it's obvious to everyone who's thought about this. Of course, it's one of the things you say that, you know, we're just you're honoring him. We're so grateful he chose to serve and we're so grateful that he was willing to put his life on the line. He knew what he was doing and he was willing to go out and battle for America. I mean, it was just egregious, and honestly, just it really put her to great shame, um, in, in my view. Okay, so I want to hit one last thing. To first of all, tell you that if um, if you're listening in Dallas, first of all, love talking to um, our listeners everywhere, but if you're in Dallas, I'm going to be on tomorrow night on Channel Eight and WFAA. We're going to ha- there's a panel uh, discussing whether or not the NFL players should stand for the national anthem and should you know stand respectfully hand over the heart so i'm obviously taking the side on the side of the panel saying yes people should stand for the national anthem um the players should but we're going to have that debate tomorrow night um and it's fun on. Ch- i'm actually not sure what time i am down there early evening but i'm not sure what time i'll be on um But I I hope you can tune in and find that out. I'll put it up on our Facebook page when I find the actual time it'll air, I'll tell you. But I want to close in talking about the situation with the NFL tonight and the ongoing um, challenge with that. You know, it was a really funny thing. I think a lot of Americans are watching all the chaos in this country. And they're watching NFL players, you know, kneeling. And now it's spread to other sports, uh, kneeling during the national anthem or locking arms. Simply refusing to do the thing, which they is it actually required by the NFL, but not being enforced, um, which is to stand, put your hand over your heart for, during the national anthem, and the players won't do that. Many of them will not. And I want to make a couple comments about that. That I think, um, you know, this is going to go on for a while. This apparently now it's spreading to other sports. It's spreading to high school. I saw some city council meeting in Florida, wherever it was, where some of the council members. Instead of when they stood up to do the pledge or whatever, I guess they do the pledge there, they they got on their knee, they wouldn't do the honoring the flag. You know, it's a really tough thing because I do think that some people engaging in this protest um, have some legitimate gripes and they're thinking maybe this is a way to get them out there. But what I really think happened to the NFL, the larger thing, with um, Roger Goodell, who is the, uh, I'm surely likely know, Roger Goodell, who's the, I don't forget his title, but he's the head of the NFL, whatever his title, commissioner of the NFL. When you look at America in the last eight years, prior to President Trump coming on board, eight years of Obama, eight years of leftism, eight years of moving the country towards socialism. Eight years of social um, activism at all times, social justice warriors it exploded in our country to have college campuses uh, students intolerant of free speech, social justice warriors who think what it means is I get to shut everybody down because i don 't like what they say or I disagree with their with their statements. so we had eight years of seeing a lot of public display of this angry, anti-American. I mean, the, the Democrat Party simply stands... Today, politically, the leadership of the Democrat Party is stridently anti-American. It's anti. It cannot admit, admit America is a good country. It, it, it tries to describe in all the political campaigns and the, way, and the themes that are chosen by the Democrats. It's an effort to paint America as racist, you know, evil, homophobic, xenophobic, um, you know, Islamophobic, uh, intolerant. All the words that the leftists in this country use over and over and over and over to describe America. This is how they talk about America, and it's and Obama got elected twice in talking that way about America, and Hillary Clinton came close to being elected to president. So I think that made maybe people like Roger Goodell you know, put their finger in the wind and said, oh, social justice warrior. This is popular now. You can be disrespectful of America and Americans will like it. You can refuse to stand for the flag. You can you can have some vague. I'm a social justice activist. I'm a social justice warrior and I'm critical of America. America is a terrible place. All of the left wing mantras. And Roger Goodell thought America's with this. He thought America agreed. With what Obama and Hillary and the leftists and and um, the Hiawatha senator from Massachusetts Warren, Elizabeth Warren, he thought America was with that. But what he's discovering is the heart and soul of America is not. America is rejecting this anti-American, you know, broad, you know, broad, broad brush criticism of everything of America that social justice warriors just have to simply say, I'm a social justice warrior, I'm standing up against America, and that everyone would cheer. Roger Goodell let this get a hand in the NFL. And in part, I think it's because he's not he did not realize how obviously did not realize how deeply stridently America would reject this conduct by the NFL players. He thought it would be okay. He thought, for the last eight years, you've been humoring anti-Americanism and proudly humoring it. And so he thought there wouldn't be a consequence. At this point, it's gotten out of control. It's out of control for him because NFL players think, I can do this. We've, we've set this off. And so their turnout are down at the games. We have, we have you know, empty seats. We have tickets not selling. We have America poll after poll saying they're outraged that these NFL players will not stand for the flag. And so I think this is still an opportunity for America to talk about ourselves again. I I, I do feel like I mean I, I hope that the NFL is not destroyed over this. But you know you got to believe left wing America is is you know this is the picture of America they've tried to paint. They've tried to make people enraged and angry and critical and about of each other, divided into hyphenated groups, alienated against each other. This is a left winger's dream. They've now got the NFL in a tizzy and America in a tizzy about the NFL. But I really think it's a sad thing, it's sad for the players. It's sad for the young children, especially young boys who thought, man, I'd love to play in the NFL someday and have dreams like that. It is sad for America that they're seeing these people, um, you know, just disrespect the flag. And I don't think Goodell and the NFL players saw it coming. I think they thought their protest would be well received. But the truth is, the heart and soul and core of America loves this country. They think it's a good, noble, great country. It's why they elect President Trump. It's why they're opposed to this. So... This is all we have time for this week. Debbie Georgiatis, America Can We Talk? Come back next week.
0: To America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk? Truth About America.